you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 1, verse 35. John 1, 35, I'll be reading through verse 42. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this portion of your word which has been read, and we trust that you have moved mightily by the power of your Spirit through this this simple reading of your Word, Lord, to open our eyes and ears. Lord, unplug, unstop our ears that we might hear not just the reading, but now the preaching of your Word and do what only you can do in great mystery but in great power to cause the preaching of your Word to have great effect, strengthening faith, revealing the glory of Christ, deepening our trust in and love for you, O Lord. Do it as only you can. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. might shock you for me to say that it was the most forgettable lecturer I had in seminary that actually said the most memorable line of all my numerous hours in the classroom. He was lecturing on the matter of how to stay Christian in seminary, or for that matter, how to stay Christian in the ministry. And he put it so simply. I remember him. He said, how do you stay Christian in ministry? You stay a Christian. (laughs) You keep doing the things you've always done. It wasn't a new idea. It wasn't the first time I'd heard that, but something about the way he said it, and maybe it came at the end of this long lecture with all these points, and he sums it up that way, it just struck me like a bell. I remember it striking me in the heart. You stay a Christian. And our look at this text will hopefully impress upon us a very similar truth. Now, I wondered as I was preparing to preach... Am I allowed to, you know, am I supposed to address Jeremiah personally? You know, usually when you address one person in a sermon, that gets you fired pretty soon after that. (laughs) This is a special situation, so of course I'm preaching to all present. But I am, in some sense, I think, preaching to Jeremiah. 
And so the question is raised to you, Jeremiah, how will you, serving as a chaplain for our armed forces, stay a Christian? And may I humbly submit to you that you will be a chaplain, you will be a minister of the gospel. You will be a Christian by continuing in the way that you've gone thus far. And to put it in biblical terms, by continuing as a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is just a follower of Jesus. And a disciple of Jesus is one who is not only following, but is also helping others to find and follow Jesus. And that's what we see happening in this passage. In your ministry, in in every one of our lives, we interact with two different groups of people, right? If you're a disciple, you interact with fellow disciples and those who are not disciples, non-believers. And your fellow disciples, you help them to follow Jesus along with you. And those who are not disciples, you strive to help them to find and follow Jesus. Those are non-negotiables of being a disciple of Christ for every single one of us. And they remain non-negotiables and the simple fundamentals of ministry. The first thing we see in the passage here is actually the the start of discipleship. That's what this passage is all about, really. You can kind of see Peter becomes the focal point of this second to Jesus, obviously. You know, this gospel discipleship terms begins and ends with Peter. Jesus' memorable words, follow me. Well, here we see the start of Peter's discipleship. In verses 35 through 37, we read that John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And John's own disciples hear him say this, and they go and they follow Jesus. A simple point, but bears stating anyways. Discipleship starts with hearing about Jesus. No one has ever become a disciple of Jesus without first hearing about Jesus. Paul tells us that in Romans 10, doesn't he? The two prior passages in this gospel are all about John the Baptist's ministry, highlighting the two days before these verses. And they make crystal clear that John is all about one thing. His ministry has one grand purpose, pointing to Jesus. Just the day before, he's shouting the exact same thing. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the next day, in our passage, it happens again. And brother, just take note, and all of us, take note of the simplicity of the message. Behold the Lamb of God. And the next day, the same message. Behold the Lamb of God. No fresh new ideas No impressive new words. What a wonderful encouragement. But it's on this day that when John is standing with his own disciples and says these words, shouts them in fact, that two of his disciples decide to go and to follow Jesus. John has been a man of one mission, one purpose, one passion. Speaking about, proclaiming, and pointing to Jesus. And so when his own followers... Maybe they weren't with John the day before, we don't know, but when they hear John say, well, look, there he is, there he goes, they know immediately what to do. It's obvious. That's good ministry. 
proclaiming Jesus, pointing to him such that you're preparing other people to follow him, such that they grab hold of him and pursue him themselves. That's the point, isn't it? John sends his own disciples to follow Jesus. John knows his position. He's the best man, not the bridegroom, right? It's not about him. He will not compete with the Lord. He's not trying to amass his own following. He wants his followers to be followers of Jesus. It's an important point for us. May God forbid that I or you or anyone in this room hope to stand in the way of a person's ultimate pursuit of Jesus. And I know that sounds crazy. Well, of course I wouldn't do that. But some of us, especially those of us in the ministry, though this is not something exclusive to us, can slip into what we call the Messiah complex, can't we? And thinking that it all falls on us. We've got to be able to do it. We've got to be able to save them. We've got to be able to change them, to reach them. And if you're not careful, you slip into the foolish notion that it's our job to do the saving. I'm the only one in the position to do it. No. But you have been placed in the position to lead that person, those people, every person you can to the good shepherd, the great physician, the comforter, the prince of peace. Now, I'm pretty sure there are no surgeons in this room. I don't really know everyone in this room. But hopefully... No matter how much you love someone, you would not attempt to perform surgery on them if they were in some dire need, right? Hopefully, we wouldn't have someone getting cracked open here in this room. Even if they really needed the surgery, what would you do? Call the ambulance, get them to the hospital. Or we'd run them, rush them into one of our vehicles, and rush them to the hospital where the professional can do the surgery, right? They can do the saving for the purposes of the illustration. In a similar way, each of us is really just a delivery driver. You're not the surgeon. You're the delivery driver. You deliver. You drive the others. You bring the others to the Lord Jesus. You pull up beside someone and say, hop in, and then take them to the Lord Jesus. John's whole ministry, and may I contend that every ministry, is as a chauffeur. As the prophets in the Bible go, John has the greatest ministry of them all because he gets to literally point to the promised one, the Messiah. He gets to point to Jesus. And may the Lord forbid that we hear that, that you hear that, that I think that, hear that and think, well, that's it? You get to point to Jesus? Yes. What a great and blessed and joyful thing it is. Rejoice in it, brother, as you do it, as you labor. You see, the start of discipleship starts with hearing of Jesus, which is possible because someone is speaking of Jesus. And then discipleship continues. We see the substance of it. And interestingly, this comes from Jesus' own words. Look at verse 37. We see that they begin to follow Jesus. And then in 38 and 39, we first read Jesus' question. 
He turns and he sees them following. And he says to them, what are you seeking? When someone makes any show of beginning to follow Jesus, the first question has to be, what are you seeking? What, what do you want? What do you really want? We'd be tempted to ask, what do you really want from Jesus? But hopefully we'd catch on. That's a bit of a trick question, isn't it? Now, Jesus says to all who would follow him, what are you seeking? What do you want from me? It becomes a theme in John's gospel. Just look at the end of chapter 2, the end of chapter 6. Jesus dealing with people who want things from him, but don't actually want him. But here in our passage, Jesus shows us, what do you want? Do you want something from Jesus? Even in ministry, we can slip into that. Want the opportunity to preach? Want the opportunity to teach others? To impress them with our words or our intellect or our knowledge of the scriptures? Do you want something from Jesus? Or do you want Jesus? The Christian life is not about getting something from Jesus. It's about getting Jesus. And these two men actually show they have the correct response. They say to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he says, come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. They have no agenda. They don't want anything from Jesus. They just want to be with him. Where are you staying? That's all we want to know. We, we, just, want to, we just want to follow you. In fact, the word stay here, it appears three times in these two verses. It's the same word often translated abide. And that might ring a little reminder for you. Chapter 15. This word very significant for John in chapter 15 when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he calls all his disciples to abide in him. The only way to have life is to abide in Jesus. Ten times in just seven verses over in 15. This idea of abiding, remaining, and staying with is very significant to John and to Jesus. And these men demonstrate it. They want to know where he's staying. They will follow him, go with him, stay with him, abide with him. I love in the Old Testament when you get pictures of faith. And Ruth actually gives us a great one, strangely enough, in her profession of commitment to Naomi. You remember when she says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will. That's a statement of faith. Now, it's a commitment to Naomi, but those are the words of a disciple. And every true disciple of Jesus says those exact words to the Lord Jesus. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Jesus is the substance of discipleship. <clears throat> Following Jesus, going with Jesus, abiding in Jesus. There's no discipleship without him. He's the substance and center of it. And understand what that means. The point is not a program. The point is not guidelines. The point is not content. 
Discipleship is all about Jesus drawing to him and clinging to him. Disciples are people who are sent out into the world, we often think. Yes, of course they are, but you can't be sent out unless you've gone home with him. And as I've already said, the very last words uttered by the Lord Jesus in this gospel are the words spoken to Peter. You follow me. That's his closing command to Peter. Stop looking around, Peter. Don't compare yourself to John. Don't compare yourself to others. Look at me. Follow me. The true measure of discipleship is not the things you've learned. It's not your list of achievements. It's how closely you're following the Lord Jesus. Continue to follow him closely, Jeremiah. And that goes for everyone, of course. So discipleship starts with hearing Jesus, which is possible because someone is speaking of Jesus. And upon hearing Jesus, it progresses into following Jesus. And really, that's it. I mean, the third point for us could be the simplicity of discipleship. We tend to overthink and overcomplicate things in the church, in the Christian life. Overanalyze, overspeculate. But it's very simple. And as we approach the next few verses, you actually have this perfect opportunity to reflect on something the whole passage has been holding before our eyes. This simplicity of it all. Have you noticed the simplicity and actually the repetitiveness of the actions here? Look at the very simple, very basic verbs. John looked at Jesus and said, The two disciples heard and they followed. They came and saw and stayed. And then we come to our next verses, 40 through 42. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Do you hear the repetitiveness? John's making a point. Discipleship at its core is very basic. It's very simple. It's hearing about Jesus, seeing Jesus, and then following Jesus. And then as you follow Jesus, you speak about Jesus so that others hear about him and then find him and then follow him. The cycle repeats. So many in our day feel like we need clever techniques or methods. How much more so is this true of churches and ministries? Technique-driven, method-driven, program-driven. And as far as personal evangelism goes, of course, there are all kinds of methods out there, and nothing is inherently wrong with those necessarily. But we all know, don't we, that nothing, nothing is as effective as being a person who is so ever in the presence of the Lord Jesus, delight in Him so much that they speak sincerely and excitedly and joyfully of Him to others. You don't meet many effective evangelists that evangelize out of obligation. But certainly ones that speak out of overwhelming joy and excitement and love. I found the Messiah. Come with me. It's the same difference, right, between, you've seen those late night infomercials 
with their actors that do the best they can. And granted, they're not the best actors in the world. But it doesn't matter what the sales pitch is. It doesn't matter what sales techniques they have. They don't convince you of anything. It's the difference between that and the close friend you have that every time you hang out, they're like, you've got to try this thing, I'm telling you. I just bought it like a few weeks ago. It's changed my life. And they don't stop talking about it. Which one is more likely to persuade you? Well, the close friend who hopefully has your best interests in mind and has not been tricked into a pyramid scheme. (laughs) But who's more likely to convince you? The one with the tricks and the techniques? Or the one who's enamored? Don't get enamored with tricks and techniques. Don't be led astray by those things. Be enamored with Jesus. Don't put more faith in any methods than you put in the Messiah. He's the one who actually saves people. Speak of Jesus. Bring people to him. And trust that he will do what only he can, as he does for Peter in this last verse. We've seen the start of discipleship, the substance of it, the simplicity of it, and here finally we see the Savior. The second part of verse 42, Jesus looks at him and says, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Can you imagine what an awkward meeting that is? The first time you meet someone, they tell you your name, and they're like, yeah, We're going to call you this instead. <laughs> Maybe that has happened to some people. It probably wasn't a good name they gave you. (laughs) But notice, Andrew back into focus here, right? Andrew's the one who brings his brother, and he doesn't say anything more once he's brought Peter to Jesus. Andrew's words are no longer important. Jesus' words are all Peter needs to hear. And Jesus does what only he can through the power of his word. He speaks and change happens. As sure as he can create all things out of nothing, he can recreate people, transforming them from unbelievers to believers, from doubters to disciples. Jesus' simple words have power as they go forth. My words don't. Your words don't. So what can you do? What can any of us do? We can't physically bring people to Jesus today like Andrew did. Of course, he's not walking the earth anymore. So how do we lead people? How do we bring people to Jesus to hear his words? Well, that makes it so obvious. You wonder why I'm even asking the question. And for our purposes here, I'll just quickly state two applications. First, and this one is to you, brother, preach faithfully. We believe that preaching is special. I hate saying things like this every time I'm the one preaching, but we believe that preaching is special. (laughs) That the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God to the people of God. He does something that I can't understand. And I have no idea why He picks people like me to try to do it. But He uses the ordinary efforts of ordinary individuals to speak His words to people. So speak his words to people and preach them. May God forbid anyone from coming up to any pulpit with a light and carefree attitude. And if I may speak to the room for a moment, 
Most of us won't walk up to a pulpit. But may God forbid you from coming to sit before a pulpit and listen with dull and disinterested hearts. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to you. Listen. And brother, preach boldly. Puritan Thomas Taylor, I love this quote, he says, The ambassadors of Christ must speak his message even as he himself would utter it. That's a scary thing. Quickly, second application here, scripture-saturated conversations. And this one I know applies to all of us, and I don't know what you'll be doing day to day, week to week, with the men when you are with them, but scripture-saturated conversations. Bring people to hear Jesus' words by speaking Jesus' words, and hopefully you know I don't just mean the red letters, right? The whole Bible. If you want people to hear Jesus' words, speak them. Know the scriptures and speak them. And I don't mean you always have to quote the Bible and say, well, you know, it says this and that. Just speak the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Paul says, right? So richly, in fact, that it just overflows. It just becomes a part of your ordinary speech. Your thoughts should be filled with the scriptures and your lips should pour them forth. When you do counseling, and really counseling is just conversing with someone, isn't it? You have nothing else, certainly nothing better to give anyone you serve than the Lord Jesus Christ has held forth in His Word. His Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Nothing and no one else has that power. You've handled some, and I love getting the pictures, you've handled some really powerful weapons, right? A lot of fun things, fun toys you get to play with down there when you go to drill. But nothing has the power like the Word of God does. may not feel it, may not have the same recoil or kick as all those awesome toys you get to play with, but it's far more powerful. So minister the Word by the power of the Spirit. once heard a pastor tell a story of an experience he had at a pastor's conference. And a man, another pastor, not present, was brought up. And for some reason, he was referred to as the Bible guy. And the pastor telling this story was like, I was a bit confused. We're a bunch of pastors and we're referring to another guy as the Bible guy in like a derisive way. And his response to the group was, are we all supposed to be the Bible guy? Be a Bible guy. Be a man of the word. Reads it, loves it, knows it, speaks it. Love the Lord, speak his word, and lead people to him by his power and grace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We are so humbled. It makes perfect sense when we really dwell on Paul's words that we hold this treasure in jars of clay. We are clay. We are dirt pots. We ourselves as vessels, not much to look at. Really no power, no glory in us by ourselves. But you have seen fit to place the greatest treasure, to entrust to us the most glorious truth in all creation, the glorious gospel of our Lord and Jesus Christ. You've given it to us. You've spoken your words to us, and now you 
Call us and send us out to speak them as we have heard. Help us, Lord, to be people who hear of Jesus, who hear Jesus, see him, and follow him, and help others to do the same. Be with us in all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.